Business Power Hour. Well, here we are on Thursday, the 2nd of December, this being the power hour that we come to you from Mondays to Thursdays. It's our last one of the week. And would you believe a week ago, we didn't even know Omicron existed. I've uh, had a little chat about that with our partners in Namibia. So coming up on the program a little later is that discussion that Gary Struble uh, from Nova FM in Namibia, and I have every week looking back at the big stories of the week. But on Biz News itself, Jared Neves looks at our uh, best read, best watched, and best listened to content once a week. Jared, what's topping the pops on Biz News for the past seven days? Thanks, Alec. Uh, so on our website, uh, the most popular post over the week penned by Ivo Wechter, surrounds the controversial seismic survey that has placed Shell in the headlines. Wechter remarks that a panicked petition signed by outraged activists at this late stage is entirely pointless, but it doesn't surprise me. What does surprise me is that the media so uncritically supports these activists against legitimate industry when their claims are so obviously ignorant false or wildly exaggerated and so easily debunked. Um, I should say that readers need to visit our website to read several takes on the topic, some for and some against. He's certainly not one for the understatement, uh, Mr. Wechter, is he? <laughs> no, he doesn't mince his words. <laughs> okay, and what are they watching? So uh, on YouTube, the interview with David Williams about the state of Prasa and SA's railway network seems to have struck a chord, racking up over 5,200 views. In the 20-minute interview, Williams discusses the critical state Prasa finds itself in and what he reckons the government should do to revive the public entity. I did do a follow-up on that today after uh, Jose Matthews, the chief executive who was suspended and on gardening leave, was Dismissed, fired. Uh, Matthews is going to go to court on it. He's uh, briefed senior counsel and David Williams gave us some insights on that. And I'd, I'd just like to point people as well to an absolutely superb uh, video that we have on Business TV on YouTube, which is 72 hours of anarchy. Uh, it was a, uh, a presentation at the second Business Investment Conference uh, by Jason McCormick whose shopping centers accounted for one-eighth of all the shopping centers in the country that were uh, decimated by, decimated is a bad word because that means one-tenth, but uh, it, they were destroyed in the looting uh, of July. So it's, it's been a massive production that Nadia has put together. It's taken her forever, but my goodness, is it worth it. So go on to Biz News TV on YouTube and uh, go and watch that 72 hours of, of anarchy. I think you'll find it uh, very sobering and uh, very insightful on what actually happened uh, during that period in July. Jared, what about uh, uh, podcasts? Uh, on Business Radio, on Spotify, the most popular popular podcast was an interview with Pete Fillion of Counterpoint Asset Management. And together with Justin Joe Roberts, Fillion discusses furniture retailer Lewis Group and investment holding company Subvest. And uh, he touches on Mr. Price as well. Well, Justin, you've got a follow up on that one too. This being Thursday, Pete Fillion's in the show tonight. What do you guys talk about? Of course, great to have Pete on a Thursday. We had a, a, a variety of very interesting developments happening across the f uh, financial markets, focusing on the JSC, and I also get to share shootout opinions for 2022. One is Sassol, uh, one of the big names on the JSC that's done so fantastically well since the pandemic, and the other one is an embroiled real estate company, Robosis. Very interesting picks, and you'll hear, hear why during the interview. Look forward to that indeed. RightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Okay, uh, Jared, have you got the news headlines for us today or what? I hope you got something good in the news. It's been uh, pretty depressing up to well, most of this week. Maybe there's a, a little glimmer of hope somewhere. 
I'm afraid to, I'm going to have to disappoint you there, Alec. Uh, yesterday, Business reported the Belito Rage Festival had been cancelled owing to a total of 36 positive COVID-19 cases. Organisers of the Pledge Rage have said the festival will continue, despite the risk associated with this decision. According to officials for the event, the festival has passed the point of no return, with 900 people expected to attend. Organisers have said only vaccinated partygoers will be permitted to enter. The Passenger Rail Agency of South Africa has terminated the employment of Group CEO Zolani Matthews. The former chief executive was placed on suspension in November with an investigation carried out in relation to his employment contract. Part of this was to distinguish whether Matthews had deliberately failed to disclose information of his dual citizenship. Prasa learnt of his UK citizenship after the state security department rejected Matthews' top-secret security clearance. The state-owned entity will begin with a recruitment process for a replacement CEO. Head of the Western Cape Health Department, Dr. Keith Kluter, has said the province has officially entered a COVID-19 resurgence following increased infections. Kluter remarked that the week-on-week percentage change in the seven-day moving average of new cases has been more than 20% for more than a week. And petrol prices reached a record high this week, with some South Africans paying 20 rand a litre to fuel their vehicles. Despite the ongoing financial challenges facing ordinary citizens, Minister Gwede Mantash has said that if e-tolls are abandoned, fuel prices will most likely increase even further to cover the costs. Justin, what's in the financial headlines? The JSE All Share Index is slightly lower at 71,000. In the currency markets, the rand is largely flat against all the major currencies to 15 rand 86 cents to the dollar, 21 rand 12 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 97 cents to the euro. Gold is lower, trading at $1,779 an ounce. Kruger Rand will cost you around 29,500 Rand. Brent crude is steady at $69.30 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency Bitcoin will put you back 900,000 Rand. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Thursday, December 2nd, and this is your FT News Briefing. The Women's Tennis Association has suspended its tournaments in China. Some hedge funds are having to go to extreme measures to recruit top traders. In France, wind energy has been swept into a national political debate, and a severe water shortage sparked weeks of protests in Iran. Water has surely become a hydropolitical crisis in Iran, and it's probably the biggest challenge that the Islamic Republic is going to face in the not-too-distant future. I'm Joanna Gao, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. The Women's Tennis Association says it will suspend its tournaments in China because of Beijing's handling of tennis player Peng Shuai. Last month, the Chinese tennis star accused a former top Communist Party official of sexual assault. Since then, her Weibo account has been censored and her whereabouts were unknown for several weeks. Yesterday, Steve Simon, the head of the U.S.-based WTA, said he hasn't received satisfactory assurances that Peng is free, safe, and not subject to censorship. The organization holds 10 global tournaments in China. It also has a contract to host its marquee finals in the southern Chinese city of Shenzhen. The WTA executive said he's concerned about the risks that his players and staff could face if his organization were to hold events in China in 2022. Hedge funds have made out well during the pandemic. So well that in one especially cutthroat corner of the industry, multi-manager funds, there's a war for talent. Firms are pulling out all the stops to recruit top traders, and traders have become pretty bold. Here's the FT's hedge fund correspondent, Lawrence Fletcher. So I heard this instance where a firm had approached a trader. They wanted to hire them. Uh, The trader said, "Okay, if you want to hire me, it's 10 million that you need to cough up. 
the, the firm said, well, is there any negotiation in that? And they were told, no negotiation. So, Lawrence, how did the war for talent at these hedge funds get so brutal? What's really changed is that um, these funds have done so well during the pandemic, essentially. And they've done really well because, A, they're diversified into lots of different strategies and assets. That's been very good when markets have been choppy. And also they're very good at risk management as well, which basically means that when markets fall very quickly, they're very good at cutting risk. And when markets are you know, rebounding, they're very good at sort of increasing risk again. So basically these funds have, you know, swollen in assets, you know, by, by 100 billion in the course of two years. So they just need more traders basically to run all this money. That's Lawrence Fletcher. He covers hedge funds for the FT. In northern France, locals have been protesting against a multi-billion euro offshore wind energy project. It's not the first time there have been protests against wind farms, but this one's collided with national elections. Here's the FT's Sarah White. This one has sparked particularly strong protests locally. So you've had, you know, fishermen going out in their boats at sea when drilling started, underwater drilling started this year and, and sort of sending a flotilla out. So it's been quite a colourful protest that, that's attracted some attention. But I think what's, it's not so much this wind farm in particular, it's more that politicians have jumped on it because wind farms more generally have become quite symbolic in France. And particularly on, on the right, on the far right and in the conservative party, wind farms have become more and more sort of ideological target in the sense that, you know, people are assimilating this with the destruction of the countryside, of French landscapes. And so that has made it suddenly this incredibly, you know, vocal talking point in France. But Sarah, in the broader discussion of clean energy, how much does France need wind energy? I mean, the country is known for having a very large nuclear energy industry. Does that play into this debate? I mean, that's a huge part of the debate. The French nuclear industry has been a, a source of great national pride for many years. It's the source of many jobs in France. So it has a lot of backers. I mean, that's, that includes the government and that includes in particular parties on the right, on the, on the left and among green parties. It has some detractors. You know, there's worries about an over reliance on nuclear as a safe source for, of energy. But certainly there's a very sort of strong pro-nuclear lobby and in France. And that plays into the debate on wind. There's a feeling among manufacturers and developers of wind projects that the anti-feeling in France partly comes from that, from, you know, a sort of strong pro-nuclear lobby group that doesn't necessarily want this rivalry from other sources of energy. But what all analysts and government institutions will tell you is that without developing and massively ramping up sources of renewable energy in France, and that's not just wind, that's solar as well, France is never going to reach its, its midterm and long-term energy transition targets. Sarah White is the FT's Paris correspondent. In Iran, there have been big protests in the southern city of Isfahan. Hundreds of farmers and other residents camped out, basically occupying the parched riverbed of the city's main waterway. They wanted water. They were vowing not to leave until water was back into the river, which was an impossible demand. The FT's Tehran correspondent, Najme Bazorgmer, has been monitoring the protests. She says they started peacefully. And then security forces intervened and cleared the riverbed. And then there were clashes at midnight. But Esfahan residents, who thousands of whom had joined farmers the week before, went back to the riverbed and staged a major protest. They chanted anti-regime slogans and the riot police used tear gas and shotguns to disperse the crowd. Many were injured. I've not heard of any deaths, but tens apparently were arrested. And this water crisis isn't just a problem for Isfahan. Najme says the country has faced water shortages for thousands of years. But in recent decades, the problem has become severe. The population has more than doubled. 
Iran is struggling with drought for the past two decades. Meanwhile, there has been state mismanagement uh, by which populist politicians have capitalized on votes of farmers and rural people and allowed them to overuse underground water resources. Uh, farmers plant water-intensive crops and nobody in the government stops them. And even if the government did try to deal with the shortage in Isfahan's Zayande Rood River or anywhere else, Najmeh says they wouldn't have many options. To be honest, there is not much the government can do at this stage because there is no water behind dams. Zayande Rood Dam is 86% empty. It's almost empty. So water cannot be given to farmers. On the other hand, the government is struggling with the U.S. sanctions and the shrinking income. So it's not even easy to pay farmers to go and sit home until, I don't know, if in the spring there is rain, if there is more water later. So it's a very complicated situation for the government that it can neither give farmers water nor much money to compensate for their losses. Najme told me that sanctions make it hard for Iran to even consider options like new irrigation technology. But the international community does need to pay attention. Yes, I, I think this crisis, this water crisis in Iran, definitely needs international help. This is going to be the biggest crisis. And one environmental activist rightly told me that if that happens, it's not going to be only Iran's problem. Iran has a population of 85 million people. If there is no water, where are they going to go? They have to migrate from the country. This is going to turn into a global problem. Najme Bazorgmer is the FT's correspondent in Tehran. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. No one just makes a meal for a special occasion. You may go online or to that really fancy daily on the corner and look at all the different options available in one place. Maybe I'll make a risotto and I'll make it really special with some truffles, extra parmesan and chili oil on the side. So why should investing be any different? Glacier by Sunlam's investment platform offers you the widest choice of local and global funds from different fund managers that you can mix and match all in one place. And it lets you customize your investment exactly the way you want it. So you can enjoy your life exactly the way you want to. Ask your financial advisor why you're not with Glacier. Glacier Financial Solutions and Sunlam Life Insurance are licensed financial services providers. Time now to look uh, outside of our borders a little bit as um, we go to the Biz News uh, Wrap of the Week. Joining me as always to talk about what's happening on the Biz News website, Alec Hogg, founder of Biz News. Alec, yeah, we were talking before we went live now and, and you're a little bit over this whole COVID thing. I'm feeling quite strong about this because I had an interview this week with Adrian Gore and uh, asking him why he's supporting mandatory vaccines. Now, I think you can be a pro-vaxxer, as I am. I've, I've had COVID. I've been vaccinated twice, um, or both the jabs. Uh, you can be pro-vaccines, but not forcing other people to have it as well, because Namibians, South Africans, anyone from Southern Africa, if you tell them to do something, they say no. Uh, we get for. We don't like it. We don't like being told what to do. And it, it was a very, very interesting interview with Adrian, which is one of the best uh, listened to, watched, and read pieces on biz news this week where he says ordinarily he would never suggest this but we don't have time and with a fourth wave with omicron now just spreading so rapidly here in Gauteng where I live in Johannesburg every second person it seems is has got COVID now uh, and the the fourth wave is very very much amongst us and I just wonder about those people who don't take the protection that they could have taken to me it's a little bit like if you go and you're promiscuous and you have unprotected sex, well, the chances are that you might end up, end up with HIV AIDS. If you don't have a vaccine, the chances are you could get COVID really seriously. 
So it's rational, but to force someone to do it, Adrian's argument is uh, we don't have time. There are going to be something like an extra 35,000 people dying in this wave if they don't get vaccinated. So it's it's a frustrating situation that we're in, but I just wish more people would be a bit more sensible about this debate and, and stop arguing uh, against it just because we're being told to do things. Well, it, it is, of course, a debate. And as you say, there's, there's multiple facets to the debate, and one of them is around making a mandatory vaccination order. And you have a story on there as well about Sarkelicha in South Africa presenting the case against this. What, 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 is the, what is the nub of their case to not have mandatory vaccination? Well, where Adrian Gore on the one side is talking about lives, and you can imagine from Discovery's perspective, they are by far the biggest medical aid in South Africa. They don't want people to go to hospital and certainly don't want them to die. Uh, Sarkelicha, on the other hand, are talking about business interruption, and their view is that if you allow the state to start prescribing on something like this, it's the beginning, it's the start of a slippery slope. So they are worried that the reaction or mandatory vaccines is an overkill, and as a consequence of doing this, they can start, the state can start um, prescribing a heck of a lot more and, um, you know, getting onto that slippery slope, according to the Sarkalicha guys, is a, a step too far. So that's where they're fighting from. All of this, of course, would be completely academic if people understood the benefits of getting vaccinated and didn't uh, have to be told to do it. And Sarkalich are saying the same thing, both uh, uh, Pitt LaRue and Russell Lamberti, who I had a, it's a fascinating interview with them as well. Um, they both said, you've got to, they're pro-vaccines, go and get vaccinated, uh, especially if you are in a vulnerable group, because that's the, the most obvious way of protecting yourself. But they also say you shouldn't, the state shouldn't come in and force people to have it because who knows what comes next? Well, what comes next, and a particularly icy patch on that slippery slope, is the expropriation bill. And there's a story on the site about how that continues to creep forward. Uh, we, interestingly, had uh, here in Namibia this week uh, a a bill tabled uh, over the weekend, <laughs> and that was withdrawn on Tuesday, that effectively would have concentrated all power in the business sector with the, the Minister of Trade, you wouldn't have been able to buy, sell, or reinvest in your business without his permission. And in South Africa, we see the expropriation bill creeping forward as well. And and these are all infringements, of course, on fairly inalienable rights in the Constitution. What's your reading on this? Is this just one of those things that just edges until someday it happens? Or are there political games being played here? You know, Gary, I, I'm reminded here of the South African Constitution's how it was written for the for president Nelson Mandela, and then along came Jacob Zuma, and a similar thing with the expropriation bill. It's the guys who started off with it came with the best intentions. I'm not talking about Malema because it was a political weapon for him, but certainly within the ANC, it was with the right intentions. Let's try and free up the land and get it uh, more productively used. But, of course, that's for a certain circumstance that they see in their eyes. And you've got to write the law almost like when you go into a prenup for the divorce, the worst possible scenario. And the worst possible scenario in South Africa with an expropriation uh, legislation that is being proposed uh, and, and Malema, someone, someone like that in power, It'll just become complete chaos. You'll be uh, off to a Venezuela-type, Cuba-type situation in double-quick time. So Terence Corrigan, who wrote that piece for the Institute for Race Relations that uh, we republished, uh, has got a very strong point. He's been banging on this drum for a long time. And quite often the problem with us as as a species is that we tend to be pretty focused on one issue at a time and our peripheral vision is not that great and this is one of those things in the peripheral vision of 95 percent of the population if it is allowed to continue unchecked then it's not going to be peripheral anymore it's going to be front and center and you're going to have a uh, an impact from the foreign potential foreign investors who've already said we're not putting money into south africa because you guys are talking about actually having in the law the right 
to expropriate the assets that I invest in. And linking to that story that was published about a week ago on the site, but I see it's still it's still getting good traction. And it says South Africa might just survive the ANC. <laughs> well, a significant section of the ANC support base vote for it, not so much out of personal loyalty, but because it's seen as the party in power. We're seeing that being eroded. What is the story there? How does South Africa survive the ANC? And and is it not almost a race to the bottom to gain as much control before you lose it that in fact destroys us? Well, it does appear as though South Africa is in the process of surviving the ANC. Uh, the Within the ANC itself, there's, there's no doubt now that the party itself is rotten to the core. But the good news about all of this is that the ANC ha- has dropped below 50%, an unthought un- uh, of possibility uh, just even five years ago. Uh, and it's, it's now well below 50% uh, in the local election uh, results. The, the, uh, another interview that I had that was really interesting in this past week was with Jacques Selier from the Institute for Security Studies. He was looking, he's a, he's a scenario planner, a futurist. He was looking ahead to the national election in two and a half years time. And his view there is that the ANC will have to go into a coalition with another party, presumably the De- Democratic Alliance, but potentially someone like Action SA. Uh, although Action SA said they don't want everyone to work with the ANC, but they will have to do that to retain power. And he's of the opinion that uh, Cyril Maposa has has got the ability to do that. But in 2029, according to Yaki, uh, the, the the whole scenario will be very different. And at that point in time, we'll know whether or not the country has survived the ANC. Of course, the country will survive the ANC. Of course, uh, countries don't just end. Uh, and it, the, the problem, I suppose, you have is how deep into the hole do you have to go before you start pulling yourself out? In apartheid, we went very, very deeply into the hole. Some people say we've probably gone even more deeply through the, the state capture and the plunder and the the, the 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 suffering that the country's had over the past, particularly past ten years, but uh, we will survive. And if it's not us, it'll be our children and our grandchildren. Who uh, I still firmly believe that uh, this is a an amazing place with incredible people. Uh, we just uh, Bobby Godsell, actually the former CEO of uh, Anglo Gold Ashanti, put it so well when he said that South Africa is a country that is always been blessed by its people, but cursed by its governors. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why... South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. I'm Joshua Roberts of Biz News, and with me for today's Market Insights is CounterPoints Pete Fulian. Pete, let's start off with the unemployment data released earlier this week. A further 660,000 jobs lost in a single quarter. Expanded unemployment rate to 47% and youth unemployment of 77%. How can any economy hope to be successful when half of the country's available workforce can't find jobs? No, it can't. And I think the joblessness rate or the unemployment rate is is a signal that the current economic policies, or not the current policies, the policies that have been in place for the past 20 years have failed completely and utterly. So I, I, I think just a sign of that, um, and, and one can't be successful with that level of unemployment. Pete, and what's even more scary is the rate of deterioration. It was dire and more than half a million jobs were lost in a single quarter. But how does this impact your investment thesis, especially South African-based companies that earn majority of their earnings in South Africa over the next 10 years? If we are, if our unemployment is going this rate this quickly, are there any signposts of, of reprieve for the labor force? Well, the only the first signpost of reprieve was that the ANC did really poorly in the last municipal elections. Um, so, to the extent that their policies inflict this level of unemployment on the population, and the population then start voting against them, that is a positive sign. So that's you know, but that's 
grasping at straws right now. At the moment, the environment is not conducive for business to employ people. It's not conducive for business to invest capital, and therefore it's not conducive to growth. Um, fortunately, for, from an investor's point of view, share prices by and large discount that this continues into perpetuity. And I think there's a non-negligible chance that it doesn't continue into perpetuity. And on that basis, there are still some uh, investments that have um, uh, high enough prospective returns to justify allocating capital to local South African investors, uh, investments. Uh, having said that, um, and I think I've said this before, I think it would be very unwise to have all um, to have all your money in this market by itself because the environment is risky. The political environment is, uh, well, there's an incapable state in charge. They can't execute on any of the policies and the policies are dumb in any case. Uh, so it's an untenable situation. So it's, it, I don't think one should have all your eggs in this basket. But it, because prices are so low, it warrants at least some eggs in the basket. Pete, if there are no reforms that you're so desperately calling for, Will we be seeing much of the same into the future? Is reforms a necessity to get this country's economy and our employment rate back on track? Yes, uh, we definitely, we desperately need uh, reforms. We need reforms of labor legislation. We need reforms of rules and regulations that impact um, the ability of businesses to allocate capital, to do business, to engage with customers, to make it easier and quicker. Uh, and that will create growth and that will create employment. But uh, if that doesn't happen, then I think you can extrapolate the country into the indefinite future. Pete, on the business front, Impala's second attempt to take over at Royal Buffer King. They just announced this morning that they've acquired more of the business, around 31%, 25% they took from some large asset managers. And they've been slowly eating away this week. We know Northam owns a third of Royal Buffer King Platinum now. What does the new Royal Buffer King look like? with Northern and Impala as large shareholders? Well, it, it, it seems that, uh, well, a couple of things. It, it seems that uh, shareholders favor Impala's bid. I think it, the asset makes more sense for Impala. They're contiguous. Um, they share the same uh, facilities in some instances. So I, I think it makes, you know, there's more synergies to be had for Impala. So Impala can probably pay a higher price than Northern can. Um, I'm not sure Northern's balance, Northern's balance sheet can carry um, buying out the rest of Avi Platts at the current or the higher price that they would need to pay. So it looks like Impala is in a better position here, but um, I think the fight's not clear cut. Uh, you know, if you're going to have two large shareholders, it's going to be difficult to make decisions. I think you'll want one significant controlling shareholder. And to get there, maybe Impala has to pay up even more. And I guess that is what the RB Platt share price is signaling, signaling trading at above Impala's price of 150 Rand. It's signaling that maybe Impala will have to up the offer to get more shares on board to get control of the asset. Pete, a little bit of a bizarre question, but topical with the holidays coming up. You as a senior portfolio manager that's in charge of your own funds, when you're on holiday, how do you manage your risk with companies? What happens if there's a start-off situation with a company within your portfolio and you're on the beach or in the bush or a, a, an event like COVID-19 where we saw equity markets drop 30% in the matter of a month? Yeah, well, firstly, I mean, um, if there is a sudden deterioration in the environment or an air pocket, as one would call it, in share prices, there's nothing you can do in any case. I mean, you can't transact. Um, uh, the best defense against unexpected um, events is to have a well-diversified portfolio uh, of assets which are priced generally at well below the intrinsic value, in other words, priced with a margin of safety. So, And then you can go away and holiday and not worry about it. Uh, I mean, a portfolio isn't something, at least the way I invest the funds I manage, I'm not trading every day. I'm not buying and selling stuff every day. I might put in trades once a month sort of thing. And then I just leave it alone because it is a well-diversified, robust portfolio. As I like to call it, it's a bundle of twigs. Uh, we have a whole bunch of individual positions where each one on their own might turn out to be a standoff. You never know uh, a priori. Uh, but if you put those twigs together... Uh, and one breaks, but you've got that bundle together, it's still a very strong bundle. So, no, I comfortably go away on holiday, and I don't have to worry about the portfolio very much at all. In fact, 
and I think I've said this before, uh, being away and leaving the portfolio alone is probably a better outcome for the portfolio than tinkering with it. Pete, lastly, just beginning this week, we've had some of South Africa's top fund managers on the show giving their stock selection or their preferred stock selection for 2022. Uh, we're not going to be keeping tabs from a returns perspective. We understand if picking a single stock is similar to going to the casino. It's just more yeah. for educational purposes, and we'll question you on them when there's certain corporate action or results of that company. Just to give you an idea, Koki Koyman, uh, the banking guru, he chose Capitech. I had Peter Major on yesterday. He's obviously commodities focused. He didn't have a pick. He thinks that it's going to be a tough year for commodities in 2022. And just after this, I'm chatting to Chris Logan. I'm not too sure his pick is. Sorry, I didn't brief you on this beforehand, but just quickly give us your pick and then maybe just some of the reasons why. Okay, so, so I'll give you two picks. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hedge my bets somewhat. I'll give you two picks. I think the, the one pick is Sassel. I think the world is not investing in, um, in oil and gas extraction uh, enough to cope with a demand which, is, which will still be there for years and years to come despite the best efforts um, and, uh, you know, and in a good way, the best efforts to go carbon neutral. Um, you know, I, I think um, the world will still need oil, and I think we can see, if not next year, the year thereafter, significantly higher oil prices because of the underinvestment in uh, oil extraction capacity. Uh, so that's the one pick. Um, uh, and the other pick is a very small cap business. Um, it's quite a stinky one. It's not well liked by people, but that's why it's cheap. Uh, it's a property company, uh, and I'm well known for not liking property, so I'm picking this on purpose. Uh, it's a company called Rebosis. Uh, it's A shares, um, had distributed earnings now on the results today of over two rand a share. Uh, they haven't distributed any uh, dividends, but the earnings are there, uh, and they've done it. They say they've done a deal uh, where they sold the company for multiples of the current share price. So this, this, these shares earned two rand thirty um, and they're trading one rand fifty. So, you know, there's a chance, a non-zero chance that this share is very cheap. There is also a non-zero chance that there's something funny going on that could turn into a standoff. Um, so I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't put my grandmother's money into that one. David Williams graced us with his presence earlier in the week where we were talking about the state of South Africa's rail structure. And David, I was quite surprised at the interest that was displayed by the business community in that interview, given that there's been further developments in the last few hours. I thought it was appropriate for us to actually pick up on this. But it's almost like you've hit a raw nerve. The railway lines are there. We don't see trains on them. And suddenly someone explains to us what has happened and our eyes have been opened up by you. I've done more work on it uh, since we last spoke, and it just gets worse when you look at the detail of it. I think the the core issue here is security, and maybe that's an issue beyond rail. Uh, if you look at a country that is largely industrialized, certainly in the urban areas like South Africa, there's a lot of infrastructure. And to drive an economy like this, you need functioning organizations in rail, in electricity, in water, and so on. And we've had repeated allegations from Eskom recently about deliberate internal sabotage of uh, infrastructure. And the railways, certainly uh, there may be sabotage, certainly the burning of trains in the Western Cape over the last few years, which we, we haven't really discussed. Uh, this is arson, uh, criminal arson, and hundreds of train carriages at a cost of millions of rand have been burnt and destroyed in the Western Cape. That's arson stroke sabotage. And, of course, the network itself uh, is in such decay that very few trains are running. And just to restore this network uh, back to something like what it looked before for passenger rail and for freight rail, but we're talking passenger rail agency at the moment, is going to cost hundreds of millions, possibly billions uh, of rand. So the issue is security before you do anything else. How do you stop people stealing the railway lines? And it's become... Uh, a kind of brigandage. Uh, it, there's no law and order when it comes to protecting the infrastructure. Uh, 
reports have come through uh, over the years of thieves taking the copper cables, the overhead wires, the signaling wires, digging up stations to get at cables under the ground. And of course, this happens to City Power in Johannesburg all the time as well. There appears to be no attempt or no strategy, certainly nothing's working, to stop these guys. They do it in broad daylight. There appears to be no arrests, let alone convictions. Let's just imagine you're sitting in Cyril Ramaphosa's shoes. You see what's going on with the rail network. So you would want to get the right person in there to actually start at least arresting the decline. Now, he's done that with Transnet by bringing in Porsche Derby. On South African Passenger Rail Services, or Praza as it's called, it appeared that he did something similar with the appointment of Horsey Matthews earlier this year. But in the last few hours, Horsey Matthews has effectively been fired uh, for having not disclosed that he, while he was in exile, had a British citizenship and he's retained that British citizenship. And in other words, he's a dual citizen. What do you make of this, David? Uh, My suspicious mind is taking me down some very dark alleys. Yeah, well, and he was on suspension and they said this was the reason. And there were some hints at some other activity, goals not achieved. Uh, He hadn't achieved what he's supposed to achieve. So there are a couple of issues here. One is the man comes in. He's been there six months or so. Uh, What one hears, he was trying to put things in place to to start fixing things. Now he's been dismissed, apparently, uh, for having not declared a dual citizenship on security grounds. And you you have to ask, well, what is so top secret about passenger rail? Uh, And this is an industry where there's a lot of cooperation across the world. The technology is very common. Uh, Countries cooperate with each other on what kind of trains to run and on procurement and things like that. So it's a very strange reason. It's not like he's a general in the defense force. Uh, So what are these, what is the security issue? And surely you could find a way of saying, oh, you should have declared that. Well, we'll forgive you. We'll find a way around it. Uh, and as, as he uh, has made clear, um, this was never a secret. He lived in exile in the UK. His father was Joe Matthews. He comes from a great struggle family. He lived in England for a long time. He had British citizenship. He's also a South African citizenship. There are a lot of people who, who have this status. Uh, whether he wrote it down on a piece of paper or not, to me, seems immaterial. As you say, one's mind goes to what is the real reason for them doing this? They actually worked quite hard to get him in. And they understood, the board, that this was an appointment that badly needed to be made. They've had a dozen CEOs, most of them acting over the last 10, 12, 15 years. All of them have failed. Some of them have been before the Zondo Commission and their questions about ethics and so on. So this was a really important appointment to make, especially given the damage that was done over the last 18 months in particular. A really important appointment. So you'd think they would do their homework, get the right man and appoint him. Then when he was appointed, there were objections because he was too old. So he didn't meet the civil service requirements of, of being under 63 on appointment. And they rejected those objections. And they said, no, no, he's the right man for the job. We'll find a way. There is a, there is a way of uh, appointing someone who's overage. And I'm sure there's a clause somewhere that says the minister has discretion if they want to. So they really tried hard to appoint him. They must have done homework. He's only been there six months. It's hard to imagine uh, if he's made big mistakes what they are in such a short time. I mean, in such a position, you spend the first few months finding out where everything is and who, who's running what and trying to get things going. So then you start saying, well, what is it? Is he uncovering corruption that certain interests don't want uncovered? Is he bumping up against vested interests? Is there a political dimension to this? Has he upset people in the government? Has he upset people among the partners of government? These are the kinds of questions we ask when we told that he's been, been dismissed for having dual citizenship. So what, going back to the fantasy of being in Sir Ramaphosa's shoes, what should the president be doing about this, given that this is a national asset that has been massively destroyed, lots of corruption, as you mentioned earlier, 
there were former CEOs of uh, Prazo who've appeared before the Zondo Commission. Let's go back into his shoes. He he can't just wipe or Pontius Pilate like wipe his or wash his hands of this. Surely he has to get involved. Well, in this case particularly, because it's this very strange anomaly, uh, when they split passenger rail from freight rail, it was a, a unified organization and it's now divided. Now, this has caused huge structural legacy issues. So, for example, in the old South African railways, Transnet in the early years, you had passenger trains and good trains all using the same network. Some lines dedicated to passengers only, like some of the suburban lines, the Mabapani corridor outside Pretoria, for example, the big uh, link to Soweto. There's a, a four-lane railway, uh, four-line railway going to Soweto. These are dedicated passenger lines, but many areas, goods trains use them as well, and that worked perfectly well under the old Transnet South African railways. For some reason, they felt that these two functions should be split. The result is you have, over the years, Prasa complaining that Transnet won't give them locomotives. Passenger trains no longer enjoy priority. In the old days, they always enjoyed priority. They were scheduled, and that had the effect of imposing a discipline on the entire network. Trains had to run on time in very uh, scheduled spots, and if one train went wrong or broke down, then it would disrupt the whole network. Now, passenger trains have lost that priority on the joint lines. Transnet Freight Rail doesn't care about passengers, and why should it? That's not its brief. And there is a history, if you go through it, uh, corruption takes the headlines, but there's a history of internal strife between the two railway managers. They bicker about locomotives. They bicker about who's going to fix what. There is land which Prasa owns, which Transnet used to own, and there's land that should be transferred that hasn't been transferred. And there's a lot of accounting issues to do with the split between these two organizations, which happened 20 years ago. And the accountants and the managers fight about who owes whom what, uh, who's responsible for what, which trains run where, and who has priority. And this is all leaving out the theft and the corruption and inefficiencies in other ways. So the fundamental thing here, uh, Alec, it's, you know, you and I have talked to, interviewed people over many years on governance, and it sounds such a boring subject. In this case, it is a crucially important subject because the PRASA reports to the Minister of Transport and Transnet reports to the Minister of Public Enterprises. Now, the only way to get these two organizations together, it would seem, because they've not really got together yet, is to abolish that distinction and get Transnet to report to the Minister of Transport, structurally. I'm not talking about personalities. We're talking about structure here. Now, you've got two ministers running different organizations. Their managers presumably have different incentives, different ways of doing things, which, as you say, leaves it up to only one man in the country uh, to sort this out, and that's the president, because he's the only one who could say and get through a decision to say, right, let's combine these two portfolios and report to the Minister of Transport, who really is the person who should be responsible for Transnet. It's difficult enough running a business without such structural impediments. So you've got double structures that don't always talk to each other, are sometimes hostile towards each other. And in the circumstances of disaster, of corruption and theft, in military terms, it would be like having two allies who are actually fighting each other instead of fighting the enemy. No one just buys a car. You may go to a dealership and consider all your options available in one place. Maybe I'll get a family sedan and customize it just the way I want it. I'm looking for safety features like airbags for the family, of course. So why should investing be any different? Glacier by Sunlam's investment platform offers you the widest choice of local and global funds from different fund managers that you can mix and match all in one place. And it lets you customize your investment exactly the way you want it. So you can enjoy your life exactly the way you want to. Ask your financial advisor why you're not with Glacier. Glacier Financial Solutions and Sunlam Life Insurance are licensed financial services providers. I'm Jasara Roberts of Biz News, and with me is Korean Capital CIO, David Bacher. Korean Capital come out with an informative summary 
of asset class and fund for performance return on a monthly basis. That can be found on the Biz News website and on the Korean website. It's great for any level of investor. David, normally I ask you what caught your eye for the month, but I'm going to start with what caught my eye. The JSE All Share Index up 4.5% for the month of November, whilst the average South African equity fund was only up 1%. I know we've chatted about it in the past. I think we both have the same mindset when it comes to passive and active management. There is a place for both. But I, for one, am surprised in the stock pickers market in the last two years that the active managers are underperforming in the month of November by a staggering 3.5%. How was this possible? You probably picked up on something that I've been, uh, you know, I think everyone's pondering at the moment, and it's a great question. Um, but uh, if I look back at uh, the Korean report, which which has been running for almost five, six years, I've never seen a dispersion between the, the peer group, the category average, and all share index. And it looks alarming. Um, but it isn't. And, and I'll tell you why. Because in South Africa, we have two different main indices. The man on the street and the public generally look at the all share index as the index has been around the longest. It's the most quoted. But the actual investment industry doesn't really track its performance against the all share index. And the question is, why? And the reason is that the all share index is a much more concentrated higher allocation to resource shares than most markets um, and definitely relative to where investors would like to invest retirement fund money. So the actual industry standard or the most asset managers in, in, in the industry use what is called the cap switch, which, use, which has two main differences in terms of its methodology, the one being that any uh, underlying shares cap to 6%, Currently, and the other one is it only takes into account uh, the shares that are are registered in South Africa. So the actual makeup of the all share index relative to the cap swicks is night and day. And what will be interesting is the cap swicks return for November was just shy of one percent. So the actual active industry, you could say. Did, did okay. Uh, uh, and it's just what you're measuring uh, the two indices, uh, uh, your, your performance against. And I, I just want to uh, continue with this all share index. I mean, the all share index, it's top five shares, and I'm double counting process in NASPAS because of the cross holding. Top five shares count 42% of that index. And the biggest allocation of the all share index is currently to Richmond. And, and Richmond then Billiton, then Anglos, and those shares really rallied hard during the last month as a result of a depreciating rand. David, there's so much uncertainty at the moment. We've seen oil backtrack nearly 20% in November, the rand in freefall. We saw the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, come on stage and say that this whole transitory narrative that he's been trying to get across is no longer. Inflation is going to be persistent for longer, which is obviously not good for equity markets, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. What were the main economic factors that drove markets during November? I think the majority of people are, are, are focused on this inflation number, and, and it has its impact on various asset classes. The fact that inflation in October in the U.S. hit 6.2%, which is a three-decade high, um, is probably one of the reasons why the, the transitory um, speech has been uh, uh, sort of put to, to the back burner. Um, so it's very much uh, inflation as, as being the prominent concern. But, uh, you know, you, you started this question by interluding that uh, uh, that oil has declined significantly. So has other commodities declined significantly. So maybe we are um, getting to, 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 to the top end of, of the inflation concern. But the other main economic factor that everyone's talking about and which is top of mind of investors is, is the new um, COVID-19 variant um, and its implications and, and what that means for, for the market and different sectors in the industry. And I mean, I'm just talking, talking personally, but uh, the amount of friends and colleagues that, are, that I'm aware of that have, have caught COVID in the last three three days has been staggering. Um, 
But having said that, um, I haven't heard of many severe cases. So, so maybe, maybe this herd immunity with low severity is, could be a good thing. And we just don't know at the moment. So on the back of that uncertainty, you've seen a lot of volatility in asset classes. Um, and that's best represented by uh, the volatility index, the VIX, which has, which has shot up during, during November. David, I've been asking some of the regular fund managers that come onto BizNews this question, but I think you would be best placed to answer it. I was watching Bloomberg the other day. In the last three years, the S&P 500 has increased by around 30%. Okay, it's lagging 30% a little bit this year, but it's on its way. There's only been one period in the last 50 years that the S&P 500 has has four consecutive years of double-digit returns. How sustainable is this U.S. bull market? It's it's front of mind from a Korean perspective. Um, you know, we've been fortunate to have uh, a, a very good product range in terms of our performance virtually across all our, our, our underlying offerings, except probably with our global allocation in equities. And it is for the reason you've mentioned. We are concerned that the S&P and the valuations are very high at the moment. Um and as a result, we have been underweight the best performing region stroke, uh, I would say, industry because of its, its tech-heavy allocation. Uh, we don't think it's sustainable uh, given the given a number of reasons. Firstly, valuations. Secondly, uh, it is driven by a, a lot of large-cap companies, which we think, even if they do continue to do well, are going to face regulatory burdens and more obstacles going forward. Um, but I also want to interject then, you know, one of the, you know, the man on the street sees the S&P or the Dow Jones or the NASDAQ reaching all-time highs. But, you know, given the weightings of those indices and given the emergence of passive shares and ETF shares and this wall of money that's been going into this, um, it's become almost like a virtuous circle. And if you look under those shares, the more broad sample of the market, um, I don't think it's reflective of economic prosperity and great earnings. And I came across an article on Bloomberg's um, yesterday where it showed that the number of shares in the U.S. market that are hitting its 52-week low relative to its 52-week high is at the same as it was at the heart of COVID March 2020. And it's significantly indicating that this U.S. market is really driven by a few shares, uh, not a few shares, um, large cap shares, um, but is not so representative of the broader market. Dave, you're so right. I've been reading so much on it. Those large cap tech stocks are masking a lot of pain of what's going on underneath. But Dave, just wrapping up, we're coming to the end of 2021. How can you summarize this year from an investment perspective? And are you a little bit cheaper heading into 2022? A lot of the things that we've just chatted about in the last 10 minutes or so. It's been a very good year for investors. And it actually played out in terms of what you would expect the relative rankings would be uh, of the various asset classes. So over time, you would expect property to and equities to outperform uh, bonds, uh, which will outperform cash. And that's actually how it's played out this year. Um, and if you look at what equities have done, you know, mid-20s, um, properties bounce back strongly, even higher than that. Um, those are good returns eh? and very good returns for the man who's saving for retirement. Um, it has been a bit of a lean period for South African investors uh, over the pre preceding five years. But when it snaps back, it snaps back quickly, and those people who have stayed invested have been rewarded. So most retirement funds in South Africa, you know, will be close to a you know, 20% return when you have inflation, although picking up significantly at about 5%, 6%. That's a significant real return for, for people's long-term savings. Well, thanks for being with us through this week. And even though Jared couldn't give us some happy news in the news headlines tonight, I'm pretty sure that uh, this too shall pass. 
better times will be across the hill, and we hope to be bringing you those on Monday. But tomorrow evening, we have on FMR Carrie's Corner uh, with Carrie Adams. Don't miss it. And from the rest of the team, though, at Biz News, until the next time, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.